As a church, we've been going through a series. We've been going through the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And maybe you're asking, why Revelation? Why that book, which is so controversial and it's so confusing at times? There are several reasons that I've shared throughout the weeks why we're doing the book of Revelation, but it's worth noting and mentioning again that Revelation is a hard book. It's a hard book because it has lots of imageries and poetic language that need interpretation. And the tendency for most people when reading the book of Revelation is to get lost in the canvas. And this is what I mean. The book of Revelation is like looking for Waldo in the Where is Waldo book series. It takes time and patience and a lot of scrutiny, and it takes a lot of, lot of patience again. And if you get lost in the canvas, you, it won't help you reach the goal of the book, which is to find Waldo. Have you found him yet? I know you're looking. I know you stopped listening the moment that picture went up. Well, let me help you. There he is. Ah... Uh, now, can you find Waldo in this next picture? You ready? It's easier the second time around, isn't it? Because you know the answer. See, many people approach the book of Revelation trying to find the answers to Christ's return or mystical insights or anything that will be about the final days and the return of Christ. And though there are some of those things there, the book of Revelation, the point of the book is to find Christ. And if you get lost in the canvas, it won't help you find him. And once you see it, once you find Christ, not only will you be able to unsee, unsee him next time you search for him, but you'll begin to see how actually everything, everything in the book of Revelation wants you to find Christ. And not just his name, not just his name written on the pages, but to actually find his love and his mercy and his invitation for you. I want to invite you this morning to see Jesus in our passage. And when you see him, my hope and prayer is that you will be able to not, un- not see Jesus, not unsee Jesus, that he'll be in every page, in every ber- verse, and his amazing grace and his love for you will be evident in the book of Revelation. Today we're looking at the church of Laodicea, which is the seventh church in the letters, but the sixth in our series since we've been going through them out of order. And the church of Laodicea was actually a lukewarm church. And Jesus' toughest and harshest words are actually found in this letter. And even some argue that they are tougher than anything else found in the uh, Bible as a whole. And maybe for you to hear that Jesus' toughest and harshest words are found in the book of Revelation, that's not surprising because the book of Revelation is just that. God is angry with humanity, and he wants nothing to do, and he only has harsh things to say. But here's a surprising factor. Not only are his harshest words found here, but his greatest promise is given to this church. His, the greatest words of comfort are also found here. Here's our gospel point that I want to present to all of us and consider this morning. Jesus, he loves us zealously. And his zealous love ignites zeal in our love for him. Let me repeat that. Jesus loves us zealously. 
and, it, and, and his zealous love ignites zeal in our love for him. I would like to consider with you and explore with you three observations from this text that support our main point. Number one, the problem of lukewarm faith. Secondly, the cause of lukewarm faith. And thirdly, the fire for lukewarm faith. So the problem, the cause, and the fire for lukewarm faith. So first, the problem of lukewarm faith. Now, we have to define what is lukewarm faith. Let me tell you, it's not a good thing. If you look at verse 15, Jesus begins his message to this church a little bit differently than he does to the rest of the churches. He says, I know your works. And usually when Jesus says, I know your works, he usually says something good the church was doing. But here, instead of a pat in the back, Jesus delivers a right hook uppercut punch to the jaw. He doesn't mince words or beat around the bush, and he jumps right into the sins of the Christians at Laodicea. In fact, there is nothing good mentioned in the whole letter, which leads many scholars and commentators to believe that this was the church with the worst, worst spiritual condition among them all. See, Jesus says in verse 15 that the church was neither cold nor hot. When I was in high school, I was taught that this passage meant that Jesus wants you to be a passionate Christian all the time or an atheist, God-hating atheist all the time. See, I was taught this meant that Jesus doesn't like wishy-washy Christians and would rather you be an atheist than a nominal Christian. And maybe, just maybe, this is a guess, but maybe that's how you've also been taught this passage and that's how you look at this passage as well. That just like we don't like people who, if we were to invite them over for dinner, they say those, they respond with that dreadful word, maybe. Jesus also doesn't like wishy-washy Christians, the maybeers of the faith. But that's not what this means. And I'm going to try to propose to you that it means something else. Because in order to understand what Jesus means by hot or cold, we need to know something Jesus knew about the city of Laodicea which is this. The city of Laodicea was located along a major trade route in Asia Minor. So if Ephesus was New York City and Pergamum was Washington, D.C., Laodicea was like Annandale, Virginia, or Tyson's Corner, Virginia, or Beverly Hills, California, where the rich people live, where everyone could afford those nice-looking houses, where only the, the streets were paved with gold and the place was filthy rich and it was luxurious and they didn't drink Deer Park water, but they drank Fiji water bottles. And if you went to someone's house and you opened the fridge, you would see that everything's whole foods organic. It was a place where people bought and used Charmin for toilet paper instead of Scott Tushied and you have to preserve how much you use at a time. Their accessories were from Carbon 38 and Fendi and Oscar de la Renta and Burberry and Prada, Valentin and Dolce and Gabbana and Shabana, whatever you want to add that I have no clue what these mean, but I had to Google them. But they were rich. They were rich. And the city was so rich, let me give you an idea of how rich it was, that in 60 AD, a massive earthquake devastated the town. And the Roman Empire came to the officials of this town and said, we will give you some money for the reconstruction. And the Laodiceans said, no, we're okay. We have enough money. You don't understand. We got it. They were that 
rich. But even in their wealth, the city lacked one thing, and that was a good water source. See, the city of Laodicea did not have a natural water source to draw fresh water from. Her neighbors did. See, to the west was a city called Herapolis, and the city called Herapolis was famous for the water, healing hot springs. And to their east was a city called Colossae, and Colossae was famous for its refreshing cold waters. So what did Laodicea do? They would use all their money, and they would invest in building aqueducts that would draw water from the west and the east. They would try to get the hot springs and the cold, refreshing waters to come to their city through these aqueducts. But here was the problem. By the time the water of, of Herapolis and Colossae reached the middle, they were neither no longer hot nor cold. They lost its refreshing and, he- and healing and attributes as water. And it was lukewarm. It was tepid. It was room temperature. See, when Jesus refers to them as Laodicea, as neither hot or cold, he's referring to their impact for the gospel. See, their faith was, in, in lack of better words, in really useless. It was self-reliant, and it ran away from any form of sacrificial living. The church neither refreshed nor it healed. It had lost any form of appeal to the world. Nobody wanted to drink lukewarm water. The church members of Laodicea, they didn't see the need to be zealous in their faith. In fact, they justified uh, their lack of passion for their Christian lives by saying they didn't want to be fanatics. That Christianity is a good thing only in moderation and measure. William Carey, who's a famous British Christian missionary who left the comfort of his home um, in 1793 and went to India to plant a church and to claim the whole country for Christ, he's famous for saying the great words, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. The church of Laodicea had an antithesis to that. They lived by a different motto, which was this, attempt some things for God and expect some things from God. In other words, God is just an insurance policy in case life doesn't go well or according to plan. See, God exists to make my life easier and more comfortable. I don't exist to serve Him no matter the cost. See, the Laodicean Christians had a cost-benefit analysis approach to their faith. They would measure the cost of following and obeying Christ and determine whether that made them happy. See, tithing to the church was only beneficial if it made you feel like a good person. Church involvement was determined based on convenience, and as long as you didn't interfere, it didn't interfere with your plans on Sundays. Confessing and putting sin to death is too much work. It's not a priority in the, in the agenda because living with sin is so much easier and more comfortable. Accountability, we can't find a time that works for both of us. Sharing the gospel with people was minimal or non-existent. You know why? Because they would say, I don't want to be a weirdo. I don't want to be like those fanatics over there who are yelling Christ Jesus all the time. My reputation is on the line. My reputation is not worth losing for the sake of Christ being known. Besides, everything's good in moderation, cost-benefit analysis. Church, do you also live 
your faith with a cost-benefit analysis like the Laodicean church did. Lukewarm, tepid, room temperature, unexcited, boring, and sadly, useless, uninspiring. Maybe you're asking, Day, you don't understand. We live in Southern Maryland. There's a lot of engineers here and people who work in the, on base, and we, our work is to do cost-benefit uh, analysis. That's our job. That's part of our job. We do it for everything else. What's the problem with that? Here's the problem. A cost-benefit analysis faith is a works-based faith. A cost-benefit analysis faith is a works-based faith, and this is what I mean. It empowers works as your source of good standing before God. In other words, it's a cost-benefit analysis faith is always asking the question of, how much do I have to do to feel like God is happy with me? What's the minimum I have to do so that I can call myself a Christian? How much do I have to give to the church after not having tithed for six months or so to avoid a call from one of the deacons? How much do I have to serve to keep people from asking me to serve again? How many times do I have to forgive that person or my children or my spouse so that people can look at me and say, what a forgiving person? How many dinners must my family host so that we can be the most hospitable family in Cornerstone? And this attitude of what's the minimum? Is it worth it? is what Jesus condemns as lukewarm faith in verse 16. And he actually does, naturally does, what someone from Laodicea would have done with lukewarm faith. He spits it out. He spits it out. But wait, it gets worse. Because the translator, when he translated this specific verse, he's giving us a PG version of what Jesus really said. See, this word, spit out, can actually more accurately be translated as vomit or gag or throw up in disgust. It's like this. During my college years, I lived in an apartment with six other guys, and, you, and you'll be surprised to know, let me tell you, you'll be surprised to know that all of us at this house who were smart college undergraduate students going for our bachelor's degree, we were terrible, terrible at checking the expiration date on food. <laughs> I know. It's, it's mind-boggling. It still boggles my mind. And this realization came about multiple times when I would come home after classes and I would, pour, and I would look at the table and I would see um, a, a, a carton of milk, never questioning how long it's been there or who bought it or whose it is. It doesn't matter. So that we share everything. And I would pour myself a bowl of Lucky Charms only to find there was an extra surprise marshmallow treat in there. There were hearts, stars, and horseshoes, clovers, and blue moons, hourglasses, rainbows, and tasty red balloons, and look, a bonus white cotton ball-looking thing in there. It must be white clouds. And if this image doesn't make you gag a little, I have a picture of you right here. I'm kidding. I don't have a picture. I don't have a picture. That would be too gross. But the point is, the point is, Jesus doesn't just politely spit out the faith of the Laodicean church. He gags. He vomits. He is disgusted. He's repulsed at their attitude of nominal Christianity, of saying, Jesus, how much is enough? How much do we have to serve you so that you can stay off our backs? 
How much do we have to serve you so that we don't have to feel guilty? Jesus is disgusted. Because the ultimate problem with lukewarm faith, with this cost-benefit analysis faith, is that it serves on its own terms, and it only seeks my happiness, my fulfillment, and my glory. Now, the question that we ought to be asking here is, is Jesus being harsh? Absolutely. But is he being hateful? Absolutely not. Why are Jesus' words so harsh? Why couldn't he say it politely or sugarcoat it? And why couldn't he say it just nicely with tolerance? We actually find the answer in verse 19 when he says this, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, Jesus' heart for his church is to be zealous Not because he's trying to remove joy or happiness in your life, but because he's trying to give it to you. See, his words are harsh in hopes that we'll see how loved we are and be led into repentance and lead lives of zealous faith. There's a famous saying that those who like you will tell you when you have something stuck between your teeth, but only those who love you will tell you that you need to go to the dentist. It reminds me of a time during undergrad when I decided to grow out my beard. My, my non-existent beard, and it didn't work. But all my friends said it would look awesome. So I went home for summer break, and the first thing that my mom said, that is disgusting. Who told you that looks good? You need better friends. The real friends are idiots. <laughs> I'm like, I don't own a razor. <laughs> and if you're thinking, no, no, tolerance is being loving, let me tell you, no, it's not. See, tolerance says, I must accept whatever you do even if it harms you. Love says, I must do something harder. It says, because I love you, at the cost of you hating me, I can't approve something that harms you. See, tolerance says, I'll accept you as you are. Love says, I must do something harder. It says, you were meant to be better. Tolerance says, you do you and I'll do me. Love says, I must do something harder. It says, I want your burdens to become mine. All to say this, the problem with lukewarm faith is that you're missing out on the joy and happiness Jesus wants to offer you. And Jesus is harsh because he wants you to have FOMO, fear of missing out on his love. Do you see the problem? So that's the first point, the problem of lukewarm faith. Our second point is this, then what causes lukewarm faith? What causes lukewarm faith? In verse 17, we find the answer. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, we said that the city of Laodicea was a rich city. There are three main reasons for their wealth. Manufacturing, money, and medicine. They, because they were located in, a, in the crossroads of a trade city, there was always money flow coming in and going out. In their manufacturing, the city excelled because they produced this black wool that was so luxurious that people would notice it from all over Asia Minor. If you're wearing this black wool, people would come up to you and be like, yo, is that black wool? And it was like, yeah, it's from Laodicea. Like, oh, snap. All right. And they were also famous for their medicine. See, the city had this rock where they would pulverize it and they would create an eye ointment out of it. And it was so... um, it was so um, groundbreaking that people all over the world would come seeking this eye ointment. 
And we find that what made their faith lukewarm, comfortable, useless, it was caused by their wealth and possessions. See, the church of Laodicea was deeply materialistic. And as a result, because they were so materialistic, they became self-dependent. To do what? They became self-dependent to conclude that they don't need Jesus for happiness. I am okay the way I live my life. Ann Sukunov, who is the executive director, editor of the American Heritage Dictionary uh, and a New York Times bestseller author, she's credited for coining the word affluenza. And it's a wordplay between influenza and affluence. And she defines it like this. An array of psychological maladies such as isolation, boredom, passivity, and lack of motivation engendered in adults, teenagers, and children by the possession of great wealth. See, the church of Laodicea was sick with affluenza. They felt in control. And they felt self-dependent that they didn't need Jesus to be happy because they already had their wool, their eye ointment, and their money. The church became spiritually blind. They thought that because they were physically rich, because they had lots of money, that also meant they were spiritually rich and don't need Jesus. They thought that being clothed in expensive Laodicean black wool meant that they did not need to be covered by the righteousness of Christ. Because they had this expensive eye ointment that allowed them to see, they thought they could see life and live life as they see fit. They don't need Jesus to intervene in how they make their decisions and what to enjoy, what not to enjoy, what to do and what not to do. They can make their own decisions. In simple, this was a Christian community that was self-reliant to determine their identity and happiness on how much stuff you have. See, Jesus wasn't their all. He was their small plan B in case death came unexpectedly. And this delusional idea that the more we have, the happier we'll be is actually very common today. Wouldn't you agree? Derek Thompson, who's a senior editor for The Atlantic, he wrote this fascinating article titled The Loneliness Loop, Why Feeling Sad Makes Us Shop and Shopping Makes Us Sad. In this article, he explains that there are three kinds of shoppers. First, you have those who shop because they need something, and having something new feels good. If you need a new power drill and your old one is is just done, you go and get a new one because buying something new makes you feel really good. The second type of shopper are those who buy new things because they don't want to fall behind on the times. They want to keep up with everyone else. If everybody has an iPhone 10, you want an iPhone 10. The third type of shopper is what he calls the middle-life crisis shoppers. It's the shoppers who wake up one day, one morning, and they realize, oh my gosh, I'm old. Where has time gone? And in order to feel like they're alive and to feel younger, they would go out and invest in a Ferrari, which they regret the week later. And the conclusion Derek Thompson makes is this. He says that no matter what kind of shopper you are, money and things cannot give you an identity that lasts because it's a delusion. See, it's temporary happiness. It's a cover-up for how lonely and how insecure you you are inside. He says this, and I quote, Valuing material possessions as a measure of success and as a medicine for happiness were associated in his research with increases in loneliness over time 
And loneliness, in its turn, was associated with increases in these subtypes of materialism. You know what he's saying? He's saying this. It's that people, all of humanity, have this constant need to establish an identity, a self-worth, to seek happiness, to be happy. And often, we take it upon ourselves. We become self-dependent, not needing Jesus to try to satisfy this loneliness, this identity crisis on our own through things or money or maybe we can extend it to people and possessions. And life becomes a cycle of trying to satisfy our insecurities over and over again. And though our souls sometimes may find satisfaction by buying something new, Derek Thompson would say, It begins all over. Eventually, even the things that you have will make you feel naked, poor, pitiable, and blind, anxious, and weak. See, church, Derek Thompson is actually onto something here when he says that money and material goods can never provide happiness. He's not a Christian, by the way, and he is echoing the truth of the Bible. Specifically, truths like the one found in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 10, where God gives words of wisdom to humanity when he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. See, the word for vanity in Ecclesiastes is exactly what Derek Thompson calls the loop or the cycle of loneliness that only God can satisfy. And Jesus knows this. He knows the real problem of mankind. He knows that mankind has a desire, a craving for much more than material things, which is why in verse 18, Jesus pleads with them. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. See, Jesus is saying this, I alone can make you rich. If you have me in your life, that's all you need. See, you don't need to try to cover yourself with things to feel important. I have covered you with my righteousness. I have covered you with my robes of royalty, and you don't need to try to live life on your own. I see more clearly. I can guide you. I can give you wisdom. Let me in. I can show you what's truly important, what will really satisfy. Verse 18 is actually a beautiful promise that is found in Isaiah 55, verse uh, 1 to 3, where God is speaking to his people, and he's inviting his people to renounce whatever they think will bring them happiness and joy, and come and buy true happiness, true joy, true riches in him. And the question is, With what currency? And in this verse, God says, with no money, no money. You can't buy this happiness and peace with money. Come without money. Come wretched and pitiable and weak and poor. Come and buy true joy and happiness. So when Jesus is quoting the same passage in this letter, he's saying this. The question of Laodicea would be, we can pay for happiness, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you can't. You come to me. You know why? Because I paid for you. See, I paid so that you can have access and fellowship to God. I paid the ultimate cost so that you can, have, you can obtain me freely by faith. See, Jesus is saying all your righteous works, all your riches, all the things that you possess, they will not make you happy. Only I will, and your currency is no good. 
See, the check has been paid. Blood has been spilled. The receipt has been printed. Come and buy. In other words, come and receive what Jesus has bought for you. He has bought you an identity. He has bought you a freedom. He has bought you happiness. He has brought you a joy that you could never buy on your own through things. Let him give you that worth and break the cycle of vanity. See, church, for some of you, you find your happiness in your bank accounts. As you see your retirement funds grow uh, every day or every month, this passage is a reminder that maybe you have more money than you need. I know that's a really odd statement. Because nobody says, goes to their boss and says, Boss, I've worked here for 30 years, and I really believe that I have enough money in my life, so please stop paying me. I will show up tomorrow morning at 8. But please, please, for the love of God, stop paying me because I have too much. Maybe this is a wake-up call that just as if we were to remove TV or an app on our phone or a hobby or images that distract us from Jesus, can I suggest that perhaps money also falls in that category? Would you consider that perhaps money is something you need to get rid of in your life? I know that's hard. I know that's hard to digest. Because nobody thinks they have enough money. Everyone's poor here. See? And how? How would you do that? Either through increasing your tithes in faith, praying that God will provide, or invest in people so that they could see God's provision through you. Being overly generous. And people looking at you and saying, what are you doing? That's illogical. Why would you spend your life savings like that? Well, because my riches are in Christ. Maybe for some of you, your happiness is in your children. You want to see them grow and become good doctors and teachers and lawyers and good citizens. I personally would like one of my kids in the future to be a professional NBA player. But church, can I remind you that the world has enough good citizens. It has enough good doctors. It has enough good lawyers. It has good enough people. The world is in drastic need of not good, but holy Holy teachers, holy doctors, holy politicians, holy engineers, holy base workers, holy lawyers, etc. And there's a better joy and happiness that comes in seeking Jesus' glory through your children for them to become not good but holy. For others of you, success promises happiness in your life. You work for success. But Jesus reminds us that making it to the top is not true joy but rather becoming lowly and leading a life of humility, that is true joy. Maybe you're single and you think that a spouse will bring you happiness. You're happily ever after. Friend, only Jesus as your top spouse can bring you true happiness and joy. See, what is it that, may have, that you may have become self-reliant and said, I'm going to work my whole life to acquire this one thing because that will bring me true happiness in my life. Brothers and sisters, would you listen to the words of Christ who says that even if you had the wishes of your hearts granted, you'll still be blind, you'll still be naked and poor. You'll never break out of the cycle. In 1987, there was this famous philosopher by the name of Bono from the group U2, and he said it best. He says, I have climbed the highest mountain I have run through the fields. I have run, I have crawled. I have scaled the city walls, but I still haven't found 
What I'm looking for. Do you know the song? It's, it's a great song. So church, if we have lost zeal for Christ and our faith has become lukewarm, we have to ask the serious question, what do we have zeal for instead of Jesus? Is it your comfort, your money, your image, your power, your sex, alcohol, sports, maybe perhaps even family? My family is my zeal. Or your time. My time is precious. Jesus can have none of that. Because Jesus reminds us that having more what you want, if you had all the time in the world, if your family was well-fed and well-secured for generations to come, he says, even if you had all that, that will not bring you happiness. It will only bring you misery, and the cycle of vanity will go on and on and on. And if you're here today and you feel like you've been living a lukewarm faith, I know I have, a faith that lives for myself, that makes small of Jesus, a faith that obeys partially to an extent to his commands or even maybe disregards him as a whole. How, the question is, how can I make my lukewarm faith zealous for him? Isn't that the question that we're all asking? How can I regain my love for Christ to be burning and not be lukewarm? Well, here's our last point. Leads us to our last point. The fire for lukewarm faith. What is the fire for lukewarm faith? You would think that Jesus, when he comes to this church, because they rested their identity on their wealth and possessions and riches, he would say, command them at once and say, you Laodiceans, you're really messing up. Get rid of your money, all of it. Become poor and go to a monastery and become a monk for the rest of your life. Get rid of it. But he doesn't do that. Or you would expect him to come to the church of Laodicea and say, you lukewarm faithless Christians, because you're faithless, I have all the right to be faithless with you. Goodbye. Farewell. Good luck. Let's see where your money gets you. But he doesn't do that. Or maybe he will come and say, all your money, all that wealth, I'm going to curse you because you love money more than me. But he doesn't do that either. See, something we've been saying over and over throughout our series in Revelation is that Jesus is well aware that while fear may get our attention, only love changes our heart's direction. Did you catch that? See, fear does a great job of catching our attention, but only love changes our heart's direction. So what is Christ's response to this lukewarm, faithless church? We find the answer in verse 20 to 21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquer and sit down with my father on his throne. Now, there are two promises here. Let me explain them separately and what they mean together as a whole. First, notice that Christ stands at the door and he knocks. He's knocking at the door. Many Christians have interpreted, interpreted this verse uh, wrongly, by thinking that this is talking about accepting Jesus into your life as a new convert, right? Jesus comes and he knocks on your door, and if you open the door and say, yes, Christ is your Savior, you know, congratulations, you're a Christian. But we've got to remember the context here. Jesus is not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. He's talking to not atheists, but he's talking to the church. So Jesus is actually knocking at the hearts of his church. He's knocking at the believers' hearts, so what this verse actually shows 
is the pursuit of a relentless lover, a zealous love that doesn't break in with force, even though he could, or fear, even though he could. He could huff and puff, but he waits. He continuously persists in love for you, even after you've closed the door shut on him. See, a famous painter named Holman Hunt painted a portrait called Light of the World. And in this painting, if you can take a look at it, you can see an old door that is filled with vines that are growing on the side of the door. And you see Jesus with a lantern and a crown of thorns knocking on this door. And as the author finished his painting, one of his good friends came to him and said, Holman, you really messed up. You really, really messed up on this painting. And the painter would ask, what do you mean by that? And he said, this painting is not realistic. I will tell you why. Because this painting has no doorknob where Jesus will open the door and come in. To which Holman Hunt replied to his friend, this door is a door that can only be opened from the inside. The point is that Jesus is still there even after you've locked and threw away the key. See, friends, zeal for God begins by realizing that Jesus will not abandon you. And he wears the crown of thorns to assure you that whatever sins you've done in the past, no matter what disease you're living with or how weak you feel or how unlovable you feel, no matter how long you've avoided church or Jesus or no matter how long you haven't been in the faith, no matter how long it's been since you read the Bible, he still stands at the door because he is zealous for you. He is zealous to come in and eat with you, to share an intimate dinner between two lovers. Two good friends. See, when a new phone comes out in the market, if an iPhone 10 comes out, you'll probably, well, it's out already, but if an iPhone 11 comes out, you'll probably see a huge crowd of people camping out outside just to get their hands on this phone, even if it costs $2,000. They don't care. They'll throw it, and you'll see, and they'll camp for days for this door to be open from the inside. But you'll never see the same line for a BlackBerry who's, that's been outdated, and it's old, and it's slow, and it's, It's last year's model. See, likewise, if you think that every religion is the same, can I suggest to you that no other God, no other God of any other religion will stand and wait in line for people who live in perfect lives. See? But Jesus, he wears the crown of thorns. Do you know why? Because he's the only one in line, and he can't wait to have a relationship with you. He's willing to pay every cost, and he shows you by wearing the crown of thorns. He's saying, I'm willing to give my life, even though no one waits for you to put your life together. I am, and I'm willing to give my life. Look, here's the crown of thorns. And it gets better. Because secondly, in verse 21, Jesus promises to his church that in their faithfulness, he will grant them to sit at the throne of his father. This is the second promise where he sits. And he says this, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, what does this mean? The throne was the best seat in the house, arguably, by a long shot. See, Jesus promises that when you come face to face with God one day, you won't be standing on the sidelines. You won't be a servant serving the guests of honor, but your place is next to the king. Your seat is not a folding chair, but it's actually a throne. You are royalty because of Jesus. Now, what do these things have 
what do these things mean together? After I dated my wife for a couple uh, weeks, I realized that she was different, and, and I was more, I didn't just like her as a friend, but I was in love with her. And, and you know what the first thing I did was, and I think you can relate, if guys, if you're married, you can relate to this, and if not, you will relate to this. Um, you go home. You go home and you tell your parents that you're in love, and they look at you and say, you're crazy. And then they ask you, does she even love you back? And you're like, no, but she, just wait, just wait. I'll win her over. I'll wait for her. Whatever the cost, I'm willing to wait it out. In fact, in fact, I am so excited to bring her over for dinner. Because when I bring her over for dinner, you will all see how much I love her. See, I'll, I'll, I'll eat nicely and I'll speak better, uh, more eloquently in front of her, and you'll see how changed of a man I am. It's this zealous love that waits and also is eager and zealous to bring the lover home. So what, does, what is Jesus promising to this church and to us who have lukewarm faith? He's saying this, that Jesus is deeply in love with you. And right now, church, he's sitting on the right hand of God the Father, and he's constantly talking about how in love he's with you, and he's preparing a table with your name on this seat. And he's working all things in this life so that one day you and me, with our lukewarm, unfaithful faith, can sit at the same table, and he can what? Show you all. Show you how zealous he is so that he can boast about his love for you. Church, if you understand this, if you believe that you're the apple of Jesus' eye, that he calls your name patiently for you to open your doors, his zealous love will ignite lukewarm hearts, the lukewarm hearts in you. And when your hearts are able to hear and believe how passionately Jesus loves you, Your love will boil for him. See, there's no more cost-benefit analysis. It's all or nothing for Jesus. If you're not a Christian here today, I just want to welcome you, and we're glad you're here. And if you look around our church, one thing you won't find, you won't find perfect people. You won't find perfectly faithful people, people who've never made mistakes in the past. You'll find plenty of those, starting with this one right here. But I'm going to encourage you that we do have a perfect lover, We have a perfect Savior, and we will be more than happy and excited to show you how loved you are, how zealous He is for you, even if you've never met Him. If you are a Christian, brothers and sisters, has your faith grown lukewarm? If it has, may you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, the only one who is a thermostat to our hearts, who raises the temperature by showing us that today, today, He's waiting and knocking on your hearts. Now, let me leave you with a practical point. What does a zealous love look like? What does it look like? Does it look like I have to abandon my job and go to a remote country that I never heard of and start a church there? Or does it look like that I have to go in the streets right today, before lunch, and go in the streets and just shout Jesus' name and try to convert every person that I see? Is that zealous faith? Not necessarily. Can I suggest to you that zealous faith is not pointing out the big things in life that you can do for Jesus and jumping right into them. But zealous faith is looking at the little things that God has given you in your life. Your role as a spouse, as a family member, as a churchgoer, as a church member, as an elder, deacon, you name it. As a Navy, naval base worker, as an engineer, 
as a son or daughter, is looking at those things and saying, I'm going to do these things with excellence. Why? Because through my excellence, God is glorified. See, the world would say, those are little things. You don't need to have zeal in those things. But we say, no, Christ claims everything. Don't you see? He claims the little things in life. So practically, church, pursue excellence not because people will admire you or you will get respect, but pursue excellence because you have a perfect, excellent, loving God. And the way, and by doing that, His glory just shines. When people look at you and say, How much, what's the source of your zeal for just wanting to be a good parent? You say, Jesus. What's the zeal for you to want to do your work to the best of ability with integrity? And you say, Jesus, don't you see? What's the zeal for being a good church member, for being a church member that is zealous to serve? And you say, Jesus. Cornerstone Church, may you believe and pray to believe to be able to see that you're zealously loved by a zealous God who knocks and waits and cannot wait to bring you back home. And may his zeal for you make the things on earth grow strangely dim in the light of Jesus' mercy and grace. Church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.